So good to, to be with you this morning. Good morning. I'd like to welcome you to, uh, to Steamtown Church. Um, to our online viewers, welcome you too. Next Sunday, we're going to be having a special service at Steamtown Church, remembering, commemorating the 20th anniversary of 9-11. Um, one of the chaplain pastors who served that day and in the months to come, um, we'll be here speaking at Steamtown Church, Pastor Rick uh, Del Rio. And so I want you to know that everyone is, is welcome uh, next Sunday, 1030 at Steamtown. If you have a copy of your Bible, please turn with me to the book of Isaiah. The book of Isaiah. In the chair in Pew Bibles, you're talking page 592. And we're going to be continuing in our se- sermon series, uh, when, when Life Hurts. It's been, it's been uh, pretty neat to see this four-week sermon series develop as it's leading up to our 20th anniversary of, of 9-11. And what I want to do this morning is I want to be crystal clear. I want to like, be as upfront as possible. So I want to give you the main idea, the central point of today's sermon, and here it is. When life hurts, here's what I want you to do. I want you to seek a higher view of God. When life hurts, seek a higher view of God. Would you please stand with me as we read Isaiah 45, verses 1 to 8. This is what the Lord says to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I take hold of to subdue nations before him, and to strip kings of their armor, to open doors before him so that the gates will not be shut. I will go before you and will level the mountains. I will break down gates of bronze and cut through bars of iron. I will give you hidden treasures, riches stored in secret places, so that you may know that I am the Lord, the God of Israel, who summons you by name. For the sake of Jacob, my servant, of Israel, my chosen, I summon you by name and bestow on you a title of honor, though you do not acknowledge me. I am the Lord and there is no other. Apart from me, there is no God. I will strengthen you, though you have not acknowledged me, so that from the rising of the sun to the place of its setting, people may know there is none besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. I form the light and create darkness. I bring prosperity and create disaster. I, the Lord, do all these things. You heavens above, rain down my righteousness. Let the clouds shower it down. Let the earth open wide. Let salvation spring up. Let righteousness flourish with it. I, the Lord, have created it. Thank you. You may be seated. When life hurts, seek a higher view of God. See, some of us in today's world, I, I would even go on a limb and say many of us struggle in, in, in the aspect of having a low view of God, kind of watering God down. Sometimes it's intentionally, sometimes it's not. And of course, there are many reasons for that. There's a lot of stuff going on in the world, right? Hurricanes, Afghanistan. I mean, and then there's, on top of that, the stuff going on in our everyday lives. We've all had circumstances or events or thoughts that have caused us to question 
whether God is really all-powerful, whether God's really all-knowing, and whether God is really in control of this universe, like, what's your circumstance? For me, it was losing my grandfather. I wasn't ready to say goodbye. You know what I'm saying? Just wasn't ready to say goodbye to my, my, my pop-up. And I remember as he was dying of cancer in the hospital bed, just burying my head into my grandfather's chest uh, at a young age, saying, I don't want to lose you. Concerning our text this morning, if you were alive in the 6th century B.C., do you know what that event would have been? What's your circumstance? What's your event? That event would have been what's referred to as the Babylonian captivity. See, in 586 B.C., Israel, it was a divided nation, so there was northern Israel and there was southern Israel. Southern Israel, Jerusalem, right? Also referred to as Judah. In 586 B.C., they were taken captive uh, into slavery. And they were in prison 720 miles from their homeland by the most powerful empire of the time, which would have been the Babylonians. They were the world power. And King Nebuchadnezzar. And Israel experienced 70 years of pain and suffering in what is known as modern-day Iraq. I mean, the city was destroyed. The great temple of Solomon was completely demolished. Children, just like at the border, right, were, were ripped from their parents. The Babylonian king, Nebuchadnezzar II, if you know anything about the history of the Babylonians, but particular Nebuchadnezzar, this guy was cruel and ruthless. Reminds me a lot of uh, ISIS and the Taliban today. History tells us that anyone that disagreed with this guy was dealt swift justice, torture, pain. People were killed. People were imprisoned. They were gutted. Sometimes their heart would be ripped out from their bodies. I mean, I've never been one to sugarcoat history. The Babylonian captivity was horrendous. It was awful. And do you think for one second that the children of Israel... Kids, adults, people weren't tempted to have a low view of God. 70 years of pain and torture. That's like a whole life. Be tempted to, to question whether God was really all-loving, all-powerful, sovereign, in control. But here's what happened. In Isaiah chapter 40 and 740 B.C., Babylonian captivity, 586 B.C. and 740 B.C., God raises up a prophet by the name of Isaiah. And one of the unique things about prophets is they could foresee the future because God gave them insight into the future. So they would prophesy. Prophets would prophesy. They would predict the future. In fact, in Isaiah, one of the arguments there is, how do you know a true religion from a false or a true God from a false God? It's the ability of the prophets to hear from God and predict the future. And if you could do that, then your religion was true. Your God was true. So in 740 B.C., God raises up this guy by the name of Isaiah. And Isaiah prophesied, the end of the Babylonian captivity. Check it out in chapter 40 and verse 1. Five chapters back. 
The text says, comfort, comfort. See the repetition there? Note that. My people, says your God. Look at verse 2. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed. Look at verse 9. You who bring good news to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good news to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up. Do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God, all loving. Look at verse 10. The sovereign Lord comes with power in absolute control, all powerful, and he rules with a mighty arm. Now this prophecy given in 740 BC was fulfilled in 538 BC where God rescued Israel from the Babylonians. Now, if I were Israel and I heard Isaiah's prophecy that this captivity was about to end, you know what you know what I'd be doing? I'd be as happy as a puppy with two tails. I mean, seriously, the relief that comes. Like, if, you, if you've been through significant pain and torture, the relief that comes when you finally get a moment of comfort, a moment of peace, no amount of the money, money in the world, I'd give it all up for just moments of peace and moments of comfort. I'd be walking on air. Here is your God. Here, you need God to show up, right? Here is your God. That's a statement that he loves you. The sovereign Lord comes with power. He rules with a mighty arm. Like 70 years of torture and captivity is about to end. See, when life hurts, here's what we got to remember. When life hurts, we must never lose focus that God is in absolute control. See, when life hurts and we're worried and we're anxious, and rightfully so, it's usually because we're trying to do everything ourselves and in our own strength. But if you're looking for peace in the midst of whatever storm you are facing, you need to hold a bigger view of God and hold on to the fact that ultimately I will trust him because he is in control. Some people have asked, where was God on 9-11? I can't believe there's a, a whole generation now where 9-11 is history. Where was God on 9-11? Let me propose that on 9-11, God was in the same place that he was on the day his son died on Calvary's cross. On the throne, in control. See, God's either in control or he's not. He's either sovereign or he's not. Isaiah here says we can find rest and comfort, look at it, comfort, comfort my people, says your God in the fact that God is in control of everything. And here's what faith does. It, faith has absolute certainty that God is in control of our lives and has our best interests in mind. When life hurts, seek out, develop through the word a higher view of God. Here is your God. The sovereign Lord comes with power rules with a mighty arm. 70 years of captivity is about to end. And I can see the people of Israel being like, how is this captivity going to end? How is this pain and suffering going to end? Well, look at verse 1. 
Listen to this prophecy. The text reads, this is what the Lord says to his Messiah, to his anointed one, to Cyrus. Do do, do you see it? Cyrus was an Iranian king, Medo-Persian Empire, also known in history as Cyrus the Great or Cyrus the Second or Cyrus the Elder. See, when Isaiah chapter 45 and verse 1 was written, the conservative position is 740 B.C. This guy Cyrus wasn't even in existence yet. I asked an Orthodox rabbi recently when that passage was written, and he affirmed the conservative position that has been held by Orthodox Judaism for thousands of years is when this passage was written, Cyrus wasn't even in existence, yet Isaiah the prophet mentions him by name. He wasn't even born. The Babylonian captivity hadn't even happened yet. And this text was written 150 years before the time of King Cyrus. Now I want you to sit on that for a second. That, that's amazing. In Isaiah 45, in verse 1, God has a little chat with a not yet king. I think this passage is a remarkable example of God's ability to predict the future. Did you know that? God wants us to know the future. 26.8% of the Bible is prophecy, according to Wikipedia. When life hurts, right? Seek a higher view of God. The text reads, this is what the Lord says to his Messiah, to his anointed, to Cyrus. Now, as far as I'm aware, this description of Cyrus as Messiah is the only time in all of God's word where a Gentile, a non-Jew has that title. But God's like, of course, from our vantage point, Yeshua, Jesus is the Messiah, but God's like, Cyrus, you're going to act like a Messiah type. Israel's Messiah, at least in the physical sense, and I'm going to use you to defeat the Babylonians and free the people of Israel. Now, I need you to understand, this passage of scripture would have shocked Israel like a cold shower. They would have been frozen. It would have challenged their very concept of Messiah. Like, God, you're going to use an Iranian king as a Messiah type, a savior type, who will defeat an Iraqi king and save Israel. Like, God, you're going to ride into Jerusalem on a donkey and kick sin and death's butt Not Rome? And God's like, yeah. In Isaiah chapter 44 and verse 28, God says of Cyrus, Cyrus, he is my shepherd and will accomplish all that I please. He will will say of Jerusalem, let it be rebuilt, and of the temple, let its foundations be laid. Now look at Isaiah chapter 45 and verse 1 again. God's like, yes, this is how I'm going to do it. This is what the Lord says to his anointed, his Gentile Messiah. Look at verse 1, to Cyrus, whose right hand I take hold of. In other words, I'm going to strengthen him. 
Now look at the war terminology, whose right hand I take hold of, to subdue nations before Cyrus, and to strip kings of their armor, to open doors before him so that gates will not be shut. I will go before you, Cyrus, verse 2. I will enable you. I will level the mountains. I will level opposition and obstacles. I will break down gates of bronze and cut through bars of iron. There are actually 100 such gates entering into Babylon. I will give you, verse 3, hidden treasures, riches stored in secret places. So God says to Cyrus, I will take hold of your hand, your right hand. I'm going to go before you, subdue nations, strip kings, open doors, knock down mountains, break city gates, cut through bars of iron, and give you treasures and riches. And God's like, Cyrus, you in? You know what I'm saying? Like, are you in? Now, if I was Israel, I'd be like, what's up with that, God? Why are you going to give Iran all these riches and power and promises? Well, look at verse 3 and 4. The Lord's rationality here is amazing. God's like, what's up with that, Israel, is I want Cyrus. I want the Iranian people to know that I am the Lord. Look at it, verse 3. I am doing all of this so that you, Cyrus, may know intellectually, experientially, that I am the Lord, namely the God of Israel, who summons and calls you by name. Now look at verse 4. And number 2, Israel, I'm going to do this for the sake of you, Jacob my servant, of Israel my chosen. I will summon Cyrus by name and bestow on him a title of honor, though he has no idea who I am doesn't acknowledge me. And I could see Cyrus, once he learned about this prophecy, being like, oh, that's kind of cool. From a military standpoint, this is pretty strategic. The Lord of Israel wants to help me, the Lord of Persia, become the number one world power. Subdue nations like Babylon and strip off Nebuchadnezzar's robe, make it naked and all, and open doors and live in mountains. And I guess Cyrus being like, that's pretty sweet. But look at verse 5. God's like, no, 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 no. No, no, Cyrus. There's an added detail I need to add here. He wants to clarify something to Cyrus. Look at it in verse 5. He's like, Cyrus, listen, in case you missed this point, I'm not just the Lord of Israel. Look at the text. I am the Lord. And there is no other. Apart from me, there is no God. I will strengthen you, though you have not acknowledged me, though you don't know who I am. God's like, Cyrus, I'm going to show you that I'm not just any God. There is no other. Apart from me, now, there is no God. And in our 21st century thinking, you know, along with Cyrus, this isn't new. He would have had difficulty understanding this part, and many of us have difficulty understanding this in a very relative world. But he's clear. He's like, Cyrus, I am the Lord. Three times. Do you see that phrase, I am the Lord, in these eight verses? Verse 3, verse 5, verse 6. Five times in this passage, God uses his name, the Lord, five times. Verse 1, 3, 5, 6, 7, 8. There is no other. That phrase, there is no other. You see that twice. Sorry, three times. In verse 5, twice in verse 6. Apart from me, there is no God. You see that one time in verse 5. So look. Truth can exist and love can correspond at the same time. 
In this passage, we have an all-loving, truthful, all-powerful God. All of it can coexist. Okay, you ready? I am the Lord, there is no other. Apart from me, there is no God. Are you ready for this? Ever wonder who created God? <laughs> Thank you for answering that rhetorical question. <laughs> who created God? Like, where did God come from? I think it was Matthew, my middle son, at age five, comes up and says, Daddy, who created God? I'm like, oh, uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, for all of us, right, the notion of an uncreated being is as mind-blowing as trying to figure out how many tea bags it would take to turn the world's ocean into a cup of tea. Given that oceans are salty, unless you want to desalitate it, you'll want to prepare a tea that is meant to be salty. The notion of an uncreated being is phenomenal. I mean, from our perspective, from the biblical perspective, creation came from a creator, but where did God come from? Because scientifically, something cannot come from nothing. Think of it this way. If you do not believe in an eternal God, a God who transcends science, created science, what's the alternative? What existed forever? How did we get here? I mean, did matter and energy exist forever? Did nothingness exist forever? Did something come from nothing? I mean, where did the universe come from in the first place? Because something cannot come from nothing. It's scientifically impossible. If you've never read chapter 4 in C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity, I encourage you to do so. I mean, think about your existence, human existence. Where, where, where did we come from? Ever since we have been able to think, says Lewis, we have been wondering what the universe really is and how it came to be there. Where did it come from? Well, we're told from single-celled organisms. All right. Well, what existed before single-celled organisms? Well, the planets and the solar system. Well, what existed before that? Well, our galaxy, the Milky Way galaxy. And what existed before that? Well, there were nebula. No one really knows what it was, but, they, you know, a cloud of dust and gas in outer space. Well, what existed before that? Well, before that, there was this big bang, an explosion that caused everything to be into being. Well, what preceded the big bang? Well, the big cause. And what was before the big cause? Well, there was a bigger cause. And what was before that? We don't know. C.S. Lewis says, do not think I am saying anything against science. I am only saying what its job is, what the job of science is. And the more scientific a man is, the more I believe he would agree with me that the job of science is watching how things behave, which Lewis refers to as a very useful and necessary job. But why anything, says Lewis, comes to be there at all, and whether there is anything behind the thing science observes, something of a different kind, this is not a scientific question. When it comes to science and the soul of modern man, I'm not anti-science. 
I'm not anti-vaccine. I'm super thankful for doctors and scientists, but we must recognize that even science has its limits. See, ultimately, we exist. We are in effect of a cause. And this belief that cause and effect turtles all the way down, can extend into the past infinitely, fall short, and the reason for that is very simple. Everything that exists must have a first cause because nothing can create itself. In other words, the belief that there was nothing and nothing happened to nothing and then nothing magically exploded for no reason, creating everything and then a bunch of everything magically rearranged itself for no reason whatsoever into self-replicating bits which then turned into humans and dinosaurs and salty oceans. That's not science. That's scientism. I mean, you show me one building, one building without a builder. One design without a designer. One painting without a painting. Show me one Minecraft without a Minecrafter. Nothing in this world creates itself. Everything that exists has something that caused it. And when it comes to this question, who created God, the answer is nothing, no one. God is the first cause of everything that exists. He's eternal, the uncaused cause. He is the first and the last, the beginning and the end, the alpha and the omega, who is and who was and who is to come, Revelation 1.8. And to put it mathematically, the category in the Judeo-Christian worldview of the uncreated is not empty. See, when life hurts, we may not know everything about the past and the present and the future, but we must never forget that we know the one who holds time in his hand. This is affirmed in Psalm chapter 90 and verse 2. Before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the whole world, from everlasting to everlasting. Look at this. You are God. Which means that no matter what lies ahead, God is already there. Which means when life hurts, we need to seek a higher view of God. And we must never be afraid to trust the pain and suffering in our lives, past, present, future, to an eternal God. Someone once said that, you're either just coming out of a storm in life, you're either currently in a storm or you're about to enter into a storm. Listen, when life hurts and it hurts bad sometimes, we need to keep a bigger biblical view of an eternal God. In fact, only the Judeo-Christian worldview presents a God who is uncreated outside of time with no beginning, no end. In the fourth century BC, when uh, the Jews, after the Babylonian captivity, they made it to Athens, and they actually influenced Plato's view in this uncreated God who was outside of time. So in some of his later writings, you see Plato picking up on this. See, for us, Time is linear, can't be stopped, can't be reversed. I mean, I know, I'm, I know I'm, I'm, I'm saying this at 40, but I can't believe I'm already 40. For us, everything has a beginning. It's sad, right? My grandfather, I, I, I might dove into his arms as he was dying of cancer. I'm not ready yet. 
Everything has a beginning. Everything has an end. But think of this. For God, he created time, and there's a second dimension of time which God dwells on outside of time. It's so infinitely long, running in an infinite number of directions, length of time, width of time, never crossing or touching our timeline where God is uncreated, uncaused, has no beginning, outside of time, no end, able to create any number of space-time continuums, dimensions at will, transcending matter, space, energy, everything. I don't even know what I'm talking about. That's how big God is. And all he says is, trust me. Trust me. Second Peter 3.8 says, but do not forget this one thing about God, dear friends, with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years. And a thousand years are like a day. And God's like Cyrus, I am the Lord. There is no other apart from me. There is no God. And his heart and his desire is for us to know this, not just intellectually, but experientially and emotionally. I want you to know what I am like, Cyrus. I am the Lord, and there is no other. When life hurts, seek a higher view of God. Ever wonder what God is like? Well, according to Scripture, God is self-existent, independent, unchangeable, eternal, infinite, omnipresent, omniscient, omnipotent. God is wise, truthful, loving. God is holy. This is Serve Sunday. Remember Isaiah 6? Isaiah goes before this holy God, and he, he, he recognizes his sin. And then God's like, who am I going to send? Who am I going to use? Who's willing to step up? And Isaiah's like, uh, I mean, it's me and the angels, so I, I guess I, guess I got to step up. I'm willing. I will go. Send me. See, when you have a bigger view of God, you're more like, God, how do you want to use my life? I mean, I'm not going to make the direct application to therefore you got to be on the greeting team, therefore you got to serve, serve in the cafe. I'm saying like there's a, a willingness in your heart to say, God, how do you want to use me? I'm willing. I'm willing to serve. I'm willing to surrender my entire life to you. God is holy, righteous, just. When life hurts, seek higher. God's like Cyrus. Let's wrap this up. Good verse 5. I'm not just the God of Israel. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Apart from me, there is no God. I will strengthen you, though you have not acknowledged me. Now, we, never, we, we don't know if Cyrus ever acknowledges God, but he decides to use him in a powerful way for a powerful purpose. Look at verse 6. So that from the rising of the sun in the morning to the east, to the place of its setting in the evening to the west, People may know all day, every day, there is none besides me. I am the Lord, verse 3. I am the Lord, verse 5. I am the Lord, verse 6. And there is no other. No one else to look to, to pray to, to trust. Look at verse 7. I form the light and create darkness. I bring prosperity. And I am sovereign over disaster. I, the Lord, do all these things. In fact, over 14 times in this passage, the Lord declares his acts. Then with incredible and repeated emphasis, he proclaims to all of us in verse 8, not just to Cyrus, but to all of us that he is the Lord. Look at verse 8. You heavens above, rain down my righteousness. Let the cloud shower it down. Let the earth open wide 
Let salvation spring up from the earth. Let righteousness flourish with it. I, the Lord, have created it. And in 539 BC, Babylonian, Babylon fell to Cyrus. And Cyrus issued an edict that made it possible for the exiles to return to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. But ultimately, do you know who Cyrus pointed to? Cyrus pointed to Jesus, the true Messiah who rescues all who believe from the captivity of our sins. And he can set you free today through his shed blood and his resurrection. If you would call upon his name, you will be saved. What the Apostle Paul says in Romans, for whoever shall call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. As far as some next steps, this morning is Serve Sunday. And we're gonna ha- it's going to be explained in a second. But just like Isaiah, who had a bigger view of God and, and was like, God, I'm willing to serve. I want to encourage you as a next step to today's sermon, sign up to join a ministry team. Second next step, come tonight to our worship night. I mean, is there any better, once you get a, a glimpse of who God is, to want to worship him? He's worthy of our worship. Come tonight at 7 for our worship night. And third, as next week is the final week in this series until we begin the book of Ephesians, if you have some pain in your life, some hurt in your life, I want to encourage you on Monday nights, starting next Monday, 6.30 to 8.30 at the church here, grief share. Grief share. It's an eight-week um, gathering, small group gathering, where, where we're going to press into who God is. And hopefully experience some healing in our lives. So there's some next steps as it relates to today's sermon. God bless you, Steamtown. If you're here this morning and you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, would you please all bow your head uh, with me, close your eyes. If you've never trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior, why don't you pray something like this to God? God, I have gotten a glimpse of you, Lord, that is bigger than when I, before I came in this morning. And Lord, I recognize my humanness and, my, and how I fall short of your glory. And because of that, right now, I want to trust in Jesus Christ as my Savior. Believing that you came to this earth, died and you were buried and you rose from the grave. And we ask this in Jesus' name.